We're going to continue in the book of Joshua this morning. We're actually going to be back and forth just a little bit between Joshua and Numbers. So uh, what you might want to do if you've got your Bible is go over to Joshua chapter 14. And then if you also can find Numbers chapter 13, just kind of put a little bookmark in Numbers and uh, we'll come to that in a few minutes. Uh, Earlier this week, I was at a staff meeting for our church, the the entire staff for all of our campuses. And uh, it was a morning meeting, so I was just kind of waking up. And one of the younger staff members in his 20s walked up to me and he said to me, hey, uh, I have always wanted to tell you that I like your hair. And, uh, you know, I was like, man, that's such a nice thing to say. I mean, to get a compliment like that first thing in the morning, I really appreciate it. He goes, yeah, I've always liked your hair. It is the color of wisdom. And then, uh, then he walked away and I was like, now, wait a second. Hold on just a second. Was that a compliment or what was that? Right. It's like saying, Hey, I really like your eyes. They compensate for your huge nose or something like that. You know, like, like, what was that? You know, and it occurred to me in his mind, uh, he was like, man, that's really cool that your hair has turned gray as you've gotten older. But it was one of those moments where I thought, now, how did I get to this place? Because it doesn't seem like that long ago that I was just like him, right? I was the guy in my early 20s looking ahead to those who were 20, 30, 40 years ahead of me and having questions like, what will I look like, be like, think like, act like when I am that age. The process of getting older sneaks up on us, right? And some of you right now, you are at the beginning of your life or closer to the beginning than you are to the end, at least as far as you know, if the Lord allows you to have a normal life expectancy. Others of you, you're a little further along. You may be closer to the end and that realization is creeping in. Some of you like me, you may be in the middle, And as we age, we start to ask, hopefully, some significant questions about our lives. Not only what am I going to look like when I get older, but what am I going to be like? What's my legacy going to be? If my kids and my grandkids look at my life in retrospect, when they stand up one day at my funeral and they talk about, here's who dad was, here's who granddad was, here's who mom or grandmom was, what are they going to say? What's my legacy going to be? And we begin to realize that we are building that legacy even right now, one day at a time with the choices that we make about how we will pursue Jesus or not pursue Jesus, how we will love our families or not love our families how we will stick to the values of the scripture or deviate into the values of our culture. We're building that legacy one day at a time. And the reality is for many of us, it's often very late in our lives before we really begin to pause and go, what has my legacy been? And yet as we look at the scripture, there are so many exhortations for us to take note of the reality that life isn't that long. The end of it sneaks up on us and ask, what what is my legacy going to be? I've often thought as I've read through the scripture that I want to uh, have a legacy that is consistent with what the apostle Paul describes in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. 
In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul gets to the end of his life and he looks back and he says, look, I can say that from the time I trusted Jesus, right? From the time I believed in Jesus until now, I have kept the faith. I've run the race well. I'm finishing well. I have been at funerals for men and women who finished the race well. Rooms that are packed like this room is packed with people who said, I want to come and give my honor in remembrance of a person who crossed that finish line running behind Jesus Christ. And then I've been at others that are not like that. Where people grieve and mourn not only the loss of a loved one, but a life that was not well lived. I've ministered in nursing homes in this community to men and women, some of whom are finishing their days joyfully because of how they followed Jesus and the legacy that they left. And even in their infirmity and old age, they're joyful and seen others who are bitter and angry and regretful. What's our legacy going to be? As we look at Joshua chapter 14 this morning, and as we round out our study and finish it up in the book of Joshua, we're going to look at the life of a man named Caleb who finished well. Some of you will be familiar with Caleb's story. Some of you may not. Some of you may vaguely remember Caleb from when you were reading the Bible as a kid. But Caleb is a man who walks with the Israelites. He lives among the Israelites for all of his life. And he is there when they leave Egypt. And he's one of only a few people, actually only a couple of people, who is still there when they enter the promised land 40 years later. Joshua and Caleb are the only two guys left from the generation that left Egypt under the leadership of Moses. They're the only two guys. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And now in Joshua chapter 14, we see they have entered the land. They have been conquering the land God had called them to. And here comes Caleb and Caleb is ready to take claim to the land God promised him 45 years ago. And so here's what I want us to look at this morning. How did Caleb finish well? What were the principles that Caleb arranged his life around in order to finish well, right? And again, I I said it earlier, you may be thinking, look, I'm toward the beginning of my days. You may be thinking I'm toward the end. Wherever you are in that spectrum, here's what I want to say. It is never too late as long as you are breathing to decide I want to begin to leave a legacy now of faithfulness to Jesus Christ, whether you are 20 or you are 95, as long as there's breath in your body. How did Caleb leave a legacy of faithfulness? That's what we're gonna look at this morning. So we're gonna look beginning in Joshua chapter 14, starting in verse six. I wanna read Joshua 14, verses six through eight. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal, And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. All right, the first thing we see about Caleb is this, that Caleb feared God 
rather than men. Now, if this were a movie, this would kind of be one of those flashback scenes, right? You see Caleb as an old guy. He comes up to Joshua and he says, hey, do you remember back when, when we went to spy out the land? Right. And so so for a moment, I want us to take that flashback. So keep your finger in Joshua 14. Go back over to Numbers chapter 13. I'm going to start in verse 25. If you don't have your Bible with you this morning, just listen along. Numbers 13. This is Caleb as a young man. Let me set the stage. You remember as they're entering the promised land for the first time. Moses sends one spy from each of the 12 tribes to go into the land of Canaan and come back with a report. What's it like? How many people do we need to conquer the land? What are the armies like? So it says, when they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us. And it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they're too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. So we were in their sight. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept. That night, all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Verse 6, I'm going to drop down to verse 6. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel saying, the land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land. So they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. Okay, I realize that was a long section, but I wanted you to get an idea for Caleb. Caleb is the guy when everybody says, look, there's, there's, we can't do this. Caleb goes, yes, we can. We absolutely can, right? And for many of us, you, you think about that guy. Maybe you've got that guy in your life and you go, that, that does get annoying, right? The everlasting optimist. And so they get tired of it. They say, Caleb, the people are tall. The cities are tall. Let's stone you to death because we're tired of your optimism, Mr. Sunny Smile. And right at this moment, that's when God shows up and he says, no, Caleb's right. Joshua's right. And because of this, you guys are going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. Everybody will drop dead except Caleb and Joshua. 
What did Caleb do? At the beginning of his journey in the wilderness, Caleb says this, I'm going to set a course by the values of God. And no matter what happens, no matter what there is to be afraid of, I'm going to hold to God. So everybody else says, no, we're afraid of the enemy. Caleb says, why? God is bigger. Who is going to judge your life and my life? Is it the people in our culture? Is it the people around us or is it God? And Caleb says, I'll stick with God even when we're afraid. And he sets this course. And I think for many of us, as we move throughout our lives, there's a danger to settle into a sort of complacency that says, you know what? What matters most to me is to be respectable, well-liked, and not make waves. And, and although we believe the values of Jesus Christ, it's hard to live them out when it requires speaking out at times against the values of our culture. It's hard to live them out when we know sharing the gospel might meet with resistance, right? It's hard to, to live them out even with our kids when we say, you know what, we're gonna prioritize time with the Lord rather than something else fun we might wanna do. It's hard to live it out in our families and with our kids when we say, we're gonna be a family that models the loyalty and the purity and the holiness of God, even though in your high school or your junior high, that may not fly well, with the popular crowd, to even watch our kids at times endure pain from other people because we push them to set a course to follow Jesus Christ. All right, so, so the question that I've been asking myself this week as I've been reading about Caleb again is, which would bother me more? Think about this. Which would bother me more if I stood before Jesus Christ? And he said, man, you allowed your values to just be shaped by those around you. Would that bother me more or would it bother me more if people think I'm weird? Which would bother me more? Would it bother me more if my kids don't have success in the world or would it bother me more if their character doesn't reflect Jesus Christ? I was reminded when Shannon and I lived in Dallas while I was going to seminary. She was a school teacher at a Christian school in the Dallas area. And there was one particular incident that I remember. Uh, she caught one student, a junior high student, cheating. I mean, caught him red-handed, right? He had copied an essay from a book of essays, right? Like word for word, red-handed. Calls the parents in, calls the kid in. This is what happened. And the parents were furious, at Shannon. Why? Because the grade and the appearance of success in the eyes of other people was more important than the character at the root of the problem. Caleb says, I'm going to set a course by the values of God because I trust him. Even when his own people want to kill him. It's one thing to stand up against the enemy. It's another thing to stand up against your own people, to walk with Jesus Christ. And right from the beginning, Caleb says, I'm gonna fear God rather than men. Secondly, Caleb says this, there is opportunity where other people see obstacles. We read verses six through eight. Verse nine in Joshua chapter 14. So Moses swore on that day saying, surely, 
The land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God fully. All right, as we read back through the book of Numbers in chapter 14, here's what we saw Caleb saying. He goes, look, you see the enemy. I see the land. You see the opponent and how big their cities are. I see a God who has promised this land. And here's what Caleb says. You see all the obstacles. I see an amazing opportunity. He goes, this is a great land. And God has given it to us. And God is with us. And all you're seeing are the people in our way. Caleb says, look, the risk is worth it for the joy of following God. As an old man, again, in chapter 14, verse 12, of Joshua. He describes the obstacles again. He says, now give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that Anakim were there with great fortified cities. And then he goes on. I love this. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. Caleb believed it as a young man. He believes it as an old man. Maybe God will be with me. God will be with me to drive them out, even as an old man. Now, remember, we're going to talk about this in a minute. Caleb is 85 years old as he's giving this speech. And he's got his sword and he's ready to go. And he says, look, you, you may remember the obstacles were huge, but God is bigger. Everybody else saw the obstacles. Caleb sees the opportunity. And as we walk with the Lord throughout our lives, if we want to finish well, here's what I would say. There's gonna often be a point. There's gonna be a line where our safety zone ends and the unknown begins as we walk with Jesus Christ, where our safe zone ends and the unknown begins. That point represents risk for us. And it is at that line, right? At that line where God really begins to work. It's right at that line between our safe zone and the unknown God is calling you to that he really begins to work in our hearts and through our lives to have an impact, right? And so there may be times that you sense God calling you in your career, for example, to risk, maybe even to change your career in order to pursue Jesus Christ. And you're afraid, right? Maybe God is calling you to something new and the financial stability doesn't seem like what it is in your current job. And yet you sense that your gifts and your passions are leading you in a new direction. You say, God, I'm gonna move just past that line of my safe zone into the unknown, right? It may be as your children grow, they begin to walk with Jesus. When I was a college pastor, I saw this quite frequently. There would be young men and women who would begin to walk with Jesus and they had Christian parents, right? And they would say, you know what? We're going to go. I want to go overseas for the summer to a place where people don't know Jesus and share the gospel. And all too often Christian parents would say, but you might not be safe and pull them back inside that safe zone and short-circuit their own kids' opportunity to risk for Jesus Christ so that they can begin to see him work. Maybe it is you, you actually take your family to that place, not of recklessness and foolishness, but of risk. Say, as a family, We're going to arrange our finances and our time and our weekends and our vacations around the values of Jesus Christ, even when it costs us. Last summer, I had the opportunity to go with a team from Grace Bible Church 
to Athens, Greece. And uh, some of you, a few of you in this room, you were with us. And I've been on mission trips before, but I have to tell you, this particular trip was well outside of my personal safety zone. And here's what I mean. We were going into Athens and and the goal was to share the gospel with refugees who had fled mostly from Muslim countries into Athens, right? And and these men and women, they were destitute. In many cases, they were stuck. And so they said, you're going to go into these parks and you're going to strike up conversations with these people. Some of them speak English. Most of them don't speak English. If they do, it won't be really great English. And by park, here's what they meant. Basically, it was like a concrete island in the middle of an urban area. And you would walk up to a group of men and women who were sitting in the heat of the summer and begin a conversation. And often they were, they were drug dealers They were destitute, and some of them, I remember sitting in the middle of one conversation, and this guy just began to launch a tirade about how he hated America and Americans, and I'm surrounded by these guys. Now, they never did anything aggressive or angry or violent, but I remember thinking, man, I have stepped way beyond my personal safe zone. And yet the Lord began to deepen my walk in that moment. Can I trust him? Is he moving? in me and in them and in this spot, even in a situation that seems from a human perspective kind of like a waste of time, right? Am I going to change their mind because I show up? No, not from a human perspective. But is God present there at that moment where our safe zone ends and the unknown begins? I was uh, thinking this week about how our culture generally loves safety. And I'm going to show you a picture. Some of you, if you grew up in the Dallas area in a certain era, like I did, uh, this will look familiar to you. Um, A few of you have probably played on this. Uh, This was at, I'm curious, has anybody actually played on this? Okay, yeah. Okay, Sarah, yeah, okay. So if you grew up near the Richardson area in Dallas, this is Heights Park in Richardson. This rocket ship was built in the 60s, and uh, it stood there well into the 21st century. I think it was just maybe five or six years ago they took it down. Uh, You can't maybe tell from where you're sitting. This is not plastic. This is steel. And um, in the summer in Texas, this thing would heat up to like 400 degrees, right? (laughs) So you would be sliding down this slide, and you would get just these terrible blisters on your calves, right? I was talking to my brothers about it. We were like, nothing is more character building than crawling around on a scalding hot steel structure. Now you can notice like uh, you can get up up here, right? And so you could climb up these little ladders and stand at the top. You could also, children figured out, jump on the outside and climb along the outside of this structure and go sit on the cone on top. You could stick your head through the bars and uh, run the risk that your head was going to get entrapped in the bars, right? It was all part of the fun. So they took it down about five or six years ago, and I read the report when they took it down, they turned it into a sculpture. They said, there's too much risk, I think it said, of entrapment, impalement, uh, and I think like blistering or injury or something along those lines. And so uh, they have put safer plastic structures. Now, I'm not suggesting that they should have left this up, but I do think it represents a movement in our culture towards safety at all costs. But I say with my kids, with my family, in my own life, what I really want is to be safe, never make waves, and be respectable. John Stott, I love this quote. He says, the motto of our generation is safety first, 
Many are looking for a safe job in which they can feather their nest, secure their future, ensure their lives, reduce all risks, and retire on a fat pension. There's nothing wrong with providing for our future, but this spirit pervades our lives until it becomes soft and padded and all adventure is gone. We are so thickly wrapped in cotton wool that we neither feel the pain of the world nor hear the word of God. That quote convicts me to the core. And Caleb was a man that said, where there are obstacles, there's all too often opportunity. And if we avoid the obstacles, we tell our families to avoid all obstacles. We miss the opportunity for what God may be doing. So Caleb says, yeah, there are tall guys. There are big cities. But man, it's a great land. Will we push forward in our walk with Jesus Christ beyond that place where our safe zone meets the unknown? Okay, so Caleb sees opportunity where others see obstacles. Third thing about Caleb is this, that he waits patiently on God. He waits patiently on God. Look at chapter 14, Joshua 14, verses nine and 10. So Moses swore on that day saying, surely the land on which your foot is trodden will be an inheritance to you and your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God fully. Now behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am 85 years old today. So Caleb has waited 45 years for God to fulfill his promises that he made to him way back before they wandered in the wilderness. They've spent 40 years in the wilderness. They spent five years now in the conquest of the land. And after these five years, that's when Caleb comes and he says, all right, I'm ready to take my inheritance. He's waited 45 years. And I have to ask myself, when I want God to do something in my life, Do I want him to show up right away? When I pray and there's no answer right away, do I quit? I'm not a naturally patient person. I'll be honest with you. That's one of my weaknesses. About two or three months ago, my family and I, we were at a restaurant here in town. I won't tell you what restaurant it was because I'm not going to speak highly of their seating process. But we were waiting outside and, and there, there were the five of us in our family along with two others in our family, my parents. So there were seven of us. If you've ever tried to get a table anywhere at a restaurant where you sit down in this town for seven people at dinner time, it's a, it's a source of despair, right? So we're sitting outside and they had told us, hey, it's going to be like 45 minutes, right? So we're waiting outside and 45 minutes turns into 50, turns into 55. We're getting hungry. The kids are getting hungry. I'm getting angry. We're going into check. And I, and, and I had this problem. And that was that as we were sitting outside, there was a, a family, a young couple that came up and they said, hey, are you, are you the, the pastor that we heard at uh, this church that we visited last week? And I thought, yes, and I was, I was glad to talk to them, but the problem was I didn't feel that I could get properly angry anymore <laughs> about the situation, right? Because I'm thinking, man, if, if I get angry now, they're going to be like, oh, I don't want to go to that place. They've got an angry, impatient pastor. So this is just my confession this morning, right? Because as the moments ticked on, and it, was, it wasn't even really that long, 30 minutes later maybe than they said, which when you're hungry feels like forever. Caleb waits 45 years for God to fulfill his promise. And I'm tempted to give up 
when my prayers aren't answered in a week or a month. I pray for people that need to know Jesus Christ and, and they don't come to know him right away. And so I give up. I pray for God to do something in my family, with my kids, with my marriage, with my career, whatever it is, and I give up. And Caleb waits and waits and waits, and here's why. Because remember, when he was young, he charted a course based on the faithfulness of God. And he said, God made a promise. God will follow through. Jesus promised he will always be with us. That doesn't mean we get everything that we want, but it does mean that if we follow him, and as our values increasingly become his values, if we persist, we will see him answer prayer. We will see him do things we never dreamed that he could do. But we have to be patient. This fits, by the way, with the pattern of many great men and women of the scripture. How long did Moses wait in the wilderness before he was called to deliver God's people? It was 40 years. How long did Abraham wait for Isaac? after God promised Isaac, probably around 25 years, until he was 100 years old. He actually never saw the promised land that God had promised to him and his descendants. But God kept the promise. David, after he's anointed king, probably waited about 10 years to claim the throne. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament, this man named Simeon, who blesses Jesus in the temple. Simeon has waited for years and years. And he says, God made me a promise that I'd see the anointed one, the Messiah, before I died. And there he is. Caleb says, if God made a promise, whether it takes a month or 45 years, keep waiting, keep praying. You want to finish well, be patient and wait for God to move. I love Galatians chapter six, verse nine. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I think most of us, as we get older, we grow weary of doing good, don't we? We just get tired of trying to follow Jesus when it's hard, of trying to trust his promises when we don't see their fulfillment immediately. Paul says, don't grow weary of doing good. Keep going. I have to say this, you know, on Father's Day in particular, there are, there are many men, by the way, in this room that I deeply admire for your persistence and perseverance over decades in being loyal to your family, faithful to your wife, loving to your kids. All right, fatherhood is, is certainly not for the faint of heart, and it's not for those who don't like waiting. Don't grow weary in doing good. Keep running the race. Those small moments you spend with your kids that seem insignificant to teach them to know Jesus, and maybe right now you don't see it bearing fruit, and you find yourself on your knees in prayer, and it doesn't feel that God is answering. Don't grow weary in doing good. If God has promised to be with you in the task, he will carry you through. And it's in those moments of waiting, right? When we've crossed 
that line between the safe zone and the unknown, and yet we're still waiting for God to show up. It's in those moments of waiting that I think he does the deepest and most significant work in our hearts to make us like Jesus and to allow our family and the world to see Jesus. So Caleb waits. So now he's 85 years old and he's about to enter into the land that God has promised because he's patiently waited on God. And the fourth thing we see about Caleb is this. He refused to stagnate. I love this next couple of verses. He says, I'm still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Now then give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. Now I know that it is the supernatural work of God, at least in part, that allows Caleb to be as strong at 85 as he was at 40. But I cannot help, every time I read this passage, I have an image of Caleb in the wilderness every day doing push-ups and burpees, thinking one day, this is going to pay off, man, because the day is going to come when I'm going to walk up to Joshua and I'm going to say, Joshua, I'm still ready. I'm as strong now as I was 45 years ago, all the way in the wilderness. It's not just that Caleb thinks about the land. It's not just that Caleb goes, one day I might get that land. He's actively preparing to take the land. He's working out. He's getting ready to go. And he refuses to stagnate. And just because he's 85, he doesn't say, you know what, I'm, I'm too old. It's too late. He keeps pushing to run across that tape at full speed. I read this week about the oldest marathoner in the world. Uh, his name was Fuaja Singh. He finished his final marathon at the age of 100. He got the best time in his age group. Yeah, I thought the same thing. It's like, how, how big an age group could that be? He took up running when he was 81. So his last years were his best in that respect. I love that Caleb expects that his final years will be his best ones because he's prepared. He has walked with God. He has seen God move. He has trusted God's promises. And he says, this is what I've waited for. I'm not too old. Are you crazy? I'm just as strong now and I'm here. So he straps on a sword and he gets ready to go. I would encourage every man and woman in this room, begin to rethink how you're going to approach the final years of your life. And here's what I mean. The the day may come, probably will come, when you no longer work a career. Right? When, when, for whatever reason, either by your choice or not, your body no longer can keep up with the job or someone decides for you that you can no longer work your career. But I would challenge all of us in this room, don't make a plan now that I'm going to start at 65 until I'm 95 and spend the remaining 30 years of my life playing shuffleboard. Invest in the lives of men and women who need to know Jesus Christ. Know the word of God. Invest in prayer. Invest in God's people. Run through the tape at full speed at the end.
Caleb refuses to stagnate. I, I, uh, when we lived in Dallas, there was, at the church we went to, there was a man, his name was Gordon. And uh, I still remember Gordon vividly because at the time, Gordon was about 85 years old. The first time that I taught on this passage, Gordon came to mind. Gordon had been a church planter and a pastor all over the United States. He had planted something like four or five churches during his years as a minister. Uh, at, at the time that we met him, Gordon was 85. He was widowed, and uh, he was stooped over with old age. And uh, yet, Gordon was still running the race. So I have a very distinct memory one day. We went to like Wendy's with some people at our church. We went through the line and somebody would help Gordon kind of get his food and everything. And so we had taken his food and we were back at our table and Gordon didn't show up. So we're worried, right? Where did he go? Did he fall down? What happened? So we go back up to check on him and Gordon is at the front of the Wendy's line sharing the gospel with the cashier at Wendy's. At the age of 85, he would regularly memorize like the book of Hebrews. I remember him reciting it. He walked around the neighborhood near the church and he would knock on doors to tell people about Jesus Christ because he refused to stagnate, right? His body was failing, but his walk with Jesus was growing deeper by the day. My prayer is that we will be men and women of that character who trust in Jesus Christ and pursue Jesus Christ even to the end. So Caleb refuses to stagnate. He fears God rather than men. He sees opportunity where others saw obstacles, patiently waits on God. He refuses to stagnate. So my question for us then is this. Is our life on a trajectory to finish the race well? Is my life on a trajectory to finish the race well? The legacy that we leave really just consists of going day after day after day by being faithful to what God has called us to do. All right, that race begins, by the way, when you trust in Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, you need to know he died for your sin. He rose again. Once you believe in him, you can know that you have eternal life. And so you will one day cross the finish line and you can meet your savior face to face and spend eternity with him. And if you know him, are you running to cross that tape well? I want to close with one quick story. Last Sunday, after I preached, somebody invited me to go to a new exercise class at um, the gym, right? So it was called endurance training, right? Which sounds super terrible probably to, to most of us, right? So I'm like, I don't know, man. I mean, like, you know, it, there's a lot of endurance involved just in talking up here. And I feel... <laughs> I feel that I have, that I have earned my rest. So I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. You know, so I go in there and, and, uh, they're like, okay, here's what we want you to do. First of all, you're going to start by, you know, jumping a rope for a ridiculously long period of time, you know, and then I want you to get on the rowing machine and you're going to row and row, you know, hundreds of meters on the rowing machine. Then you're going to get on a stationary bike where you will ride and ride for two miles, at least until it says that you've gone two miles. Uh, I don't trust it because we're not going anywhere, right? We're just sitting there on the bike. And so you'll ride for like, you know, I don't know, 10 minutes. It'd be like one-tenth of a mile. And you're just, you're going to cry, you know, whatever. So, and then he goes, when you finish those two miles, go back to the rower. And when you finish on the rower, go back to the bike and then back to the rower 
and then back to the bike, right? So we do this over, we rode and 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 we rode. And this went on for like an hour, right? And about, about 30 minutes in, I began to think, I hate this. Like I hate this. Every, every moment of this, I'm like, it's Sunday afternoon, right? So here's what I did. I, I thought, here's what I started to think. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm halfway through. So I, I might have 30 minutes left and then, then I will go home, right? So I began to lock my mind. I was like, I just got to make it 30 more minutes and then I'm going to, I'm going to go home. I'm going to leave here. I'm going to go home and I'm going to resist the urge to post something mean about it on Facebook. <laughs> and what I'm going to do, here's what I'm going to do when I get home. I'm going to go, I'm going to take a, a hot shower right? And, and try to just purge myself of the, the sweat and the memories that I have experienced while I'm there. And then I'm going to walk into the kitchen and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make myself a plate of nachos. Now, judge me or not, you can say that that cancels out the workout. I don't care. I earned them, all right? So I'm going to make myself a plate of nachos. I'm going to sit down on the sofa and I will rest, right? I will rest. So, so every time I began to think, I hate this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to bike anymore. I don't want to row anymore. I would go, I'm going to be home. In just a little while, I'm going to be home. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to rest. I'm going to rest at my home. Now, why do I tell you that? Because as we move through the scripture, and we're going to preach from Philippians, by the way, in the fall, and you're going to see this, that the urging of the scripture in order for us to finish well, is not too dissimilar from that, right? We're running and we go, man, I I hate this. I hate that the world is sinful. I hate constantly pushing back against values that are disobedient to God's word. I hate fighting sin. I hate praying and not seeing immediate answers. It's it's a struggle for me. And Paul's gonna tell us in Philippians, yeah, but just a little while, you're gonna be home. You're going to cross that tape and you're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of what? Your rest. Sit down. Enjoy some nachos. I think there will be nachos. But you're going to get to rest. But in the meanwhile, you do what Caleb did. You run across that tape. And you keep your eyes fixed on the prize until the day Jesus returns or you collapse with exhaustion and you fall into his arms. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you have provided for us examples of men and women who ran across that tape faithfully. Lord, we know that there are many in the room this morning that are, that are faltering and struggling, maybe tempted to run a different path, maybe tempted just to, to quit. Bear them up. Father, we pray, bear us all up. Let us run the race well and leave a legacy of faithfulness, not perfection, but faithfulness to the call of Jesus Christ. We're grateful for your word. We are grateful for this time. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.